And Lord, open our hearts to this last in the series uh, called Fight the Good Fight. Thank you for sticking with us through 33 Sundays, uh, off and on uh, through the year uh, of learning and relearning, of preparing our hearts because we've seen what was in us, we've seen what is around us, and now we're setting our sights on what is before us. As we get to 2022, we're going to be talking about the fullness, the fullness that is provided for us in the Christian life. We believe it's a season of open heavens. We believe it's a time when whosoever will may come. We believe that it's the beginning of the best days that our church has ever known. And we believe it's the, it's the beginning of a new season, the opening of a new door. We're excited about the future. Now, the topic that I want to end this series with, now, by the way, that it, don't stay away from now till January. I mean, we've got church every Sunday and, and Wednesday, um, but we're going to begin a, our holiday celebration with a Thanksgiving message and then... Um, <clears throat> We're going to have a Christmas series of, uh, I think, uh, what, Corey, about five messages or so, <coughs> excuse me, um, during the, the month of December, and then we're going to hit the ground running in January talking about fullness. But we wanted to end today with this idea of run well to the end. Paul wrote to the Galatians and he asked a question. We're going to read it in just a moment in chapter 5. He said, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Now, when you read um, Galatians, Paul is writing to preserve the soul of that church. They were buying into lies. You know, the big thing today is the deconstruction of the gospel. The gospel has to be refined and changed and restructured. The Bible doesn't need to be deconstructed. The Bible needs to be believed and it needs to be embraced. And uh, at the risk of sounding old fashioned, do not cave in to these new uh, slants on the gospel or these as though the church has failed for 2,000 years. They've had, we've had moments that we have failed. We all have, this church included, but the word of God is alive. It's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, and we don't need to do away with what God has given us as the path to eternal life. Neither do I want you to, I want to give you a couple of disclaimers. I don't want you to think that just because Galatian, uh, the church in, in churches in Galatia were being hammered because they were, they were drifting away. I'm not reading these verses because I think we're drifting away, not, not by any stretch. I'm thankful for the work of the Holy Spirit in our midst. I'm thankful that uh, the, the kingdom of God is growing. I'm thankful that even though we're in a time of challenge, we're moving in the right direction. So this today is not a, oh man, we're doing like the Galatians, we're going the wrong way and we've got to be whipped back into shape. No, it's, it's to present to you the proposition that we can run well and keep running well. Not that we always do. There will always be things that will present themselves. Even if you're running well, there will be things that try to pull you back or try to detour you. When Jane, uh, Jim Baker had his problem 
at PTL years ago, somebody asked him a question that many folks were wondering. They said uh, to, to Jim Baker, they said, Jim, when did you stop loving the Lord to have these kind of problems? And Jim Baker, in a moment of great transparency and vulnerability, he said, stop loving the Lord? He said, I never stopped loving the Lord. He said, I stopped fearing the Lord. And that was a message loud and clear to the church that even though we love the Lord, and you know, a lot of pastors preach like, like they just don't have anything they can work with. Like the church is just bad and the church is bent on going to hell. The church is just trying to create ways to fall. I don't believe that for a minute. I believe everyone in here, if you're a Christian, I believe you love the Lord. I, I believe that with all of my heart. I think at the end of the day, no matter what has happened or not happened, I think you're like Simon Peter when Peter was going through his restoration process like we talked about, I think, last week. He said, Lord, you know all things and you know that I love you. So I'm not coming to the pulpit every Sunday trying to think I got a lot of people that are trying to get out of this and I've got to talk them back into it. No, I've got a congregation and I believe most Christians are like this. They love the Lord. They don't serve him out of fear. They don't serve him out of obligation. Now there are some that do, but that's only because they haven't let their love grow to the point that it supersedes anything else that is in our lives. And that's what we're after. We're after three things that we've been trying to do for 27 years. And I know Pastor Brown did it before I came here. We, we focus on three things. Number one is decision. We believe that every man, woman, boy, and girl that names the name of Christ has to come to a decision. You, you are not a Christian because you were born into the church. You're not a Christian because you were baptized or dedicated as a baby. God has no grandchildren. My children are Christians, but not because their daddy was a Christian. I'm, I am believing God to work in the lives of my, of my grandchildren, but they won't be serving the Lord because Papa was a Christian. They'll have to make their own decision. And so we tell people that the first thing, the most important thing that our church stands for is decision. We make a decision. You can do it in an informal setting. I've known, you know, uh, C.S. Lewis described it as joy by surprise. He said he read the claims of Christ and he kept reading and he kept reading and kept reading. He said, and then it came to me in a moment, I believe this. I believe this. And it came to him in a moment, I am a Christian. I believe this. But there was a moment that he passed from doubt to belief. Uh, the Bible describes it this way. It says those who come to Jesus have passed from death to life. And that's not something that's going to happen when you die or when the Lord returns. If you are a Christian, you have already made that great transition from death to life as a decision. But we also teach that not only do we make a decision to follow him, we believe that the joy of your life, the quality of your life, the quality of your service is determined by whether or not you choose to walk in intimacy with the Lord. Uh, not everybody has a good prayer life, and we all ought to. Not everybody stays in the Word as they ought to, but that doesn't mean you're not a Christian. It, but it does mean, uh, or it does have a very distinct effect on the joy 
of your journey. You know, when we get to heaven, we will be rewarded for the life we live, but it's not rewarded with salvation. We already have that. We don't go to heaven by our works, but our works follow us there, Adrian Rogers said. And um, we, we will be rewarded according to our works, but saved, never forget this, saved by grace, always by his grace. We can't deserve it. And even if we, if we could try, we couldn't earn it. It's by his grace. It's through faith. We believe. So we believe that people of God are called to make a decision. They're called to a life of intimacy. And the third thing is we realize that we are in a process. We're in a process. Um, in two places, the work of the Holy Spirit is described as either as fruit or the product of fruit like wine. Now, let me tell you what Jesus can do. Jesus can take water and turn it into wine instantly. And that's what happens when we become Christians. We are changed in a moment and we have become a new creation. We are a genuine wedding in Cana miracle of wine, water turning to wine. In one moment, we are lost without hope, without promise, without love. And in the very next blink of an eye, we have eternal life and we are going to heaven. We are changed from death into life. We pass just like that. And we praise God for those miraculous moments. But I've got to tell you the truth. Most wine's not made that way. Our salvation works that way. But let me, tell you, let me tell you the way the rest of the wine is made. Now, all of you have, have been transformed. If you're, if you're a Christian, you, you have experienced the miracle of water being turned into wine. But I also want to tell you that you also are going to find that most of the wine produced in your life is produced the other way. You say, what's the other way? Well, basically, it consists of time and then somebody stomping the snot out of you. See, now I'm, 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 you know, two ways wine, are, wine is produced miraculously. Something, God is able to deliver you from something instantly, just like he saved you. God is able to heal an affliction in your body instantly, just like he saved you. We, we don't doubt that at all, but that's not the way most wine comes. Most wine, you dig a hole, you plant a vine you wait a couple of years for it to grow, then it begins to produce, but the first couple of years are so weak, you get rid of those grapes. They're just kind of used to, to feed something else. Um, or maybe to make, uh, they, they had a food they loved made from, from grapes and figs, kind of like Fig Newtons, you know. Uh, but for wine, it had to be a certain quality of grape. It had to be a certain size. And it takes time and then you say, I've arrived. My, my grape crop is plump and juicy and it's ready. And so you get picked and you're saying, oh, I'm, I made it. I made it. I'm being chosen. But what you don't know is you're about to be thrown into a wine press. <laughs> and somebody with dirty feet is going to hop in and stomp you until you're unrecognizable. You say, well, I thought, I thought they were a messenger from the devil. Sometimes they are. Sometimes they're your best friend. 
Sometimes it's just the sovereign hand of God. Sometimes it's just life. It's just life. But you get crushed. That's the way wine is made. The grapes have to be crushed. If it's a nice wine press, you crush the grapes and the, um, the, the, the wine will filter out a, a hole in the bottom. But that was fairly rare because it, it, it was too easy. It was too easy for the plug to get uh, uh, clogged. And, and it, it, it didn't let the process that needed to take place happen. There were some like that, but it was usually inferior wine. The, and I'm not a wine drinker, so for, forgive me uh, for probably not speaking with expertise that others might be able to speak from. But what happens is you get stomped and the grapes that are beautiful are now unrecognizable. You've got the wine or, or the juice, you've got the pulp, um, you've got stems that were thrown in, you've got maybe some hay that followed your feet off the beaten track into the thing, and, and then you're left, you're left. You thought God was ready to use you, but it seems like he's left you. Well, what happens is the fermentation process begins, and then all of the stuff it's, it's called must, M-U-S-T. It's, it's what you're going to take out of the mix in order to make wine. And as fermentation occurs, the bubbling begins and the must rises to the top. And there it hardens. So not only have you been left alone, but now your world is closing in. And then after a certain period of time, they come and they break up the must and they get rid of the must. They feed it to the animals or, or what have you. But the must, must happen. So the next time you're complaining about somebody stomping the snot out of you, it's because the must, must happen. Those things need to be separated and then it's got to rise. And they clear the must and you say, all right, now all we've got is wine. Well, not so fast. First of all, it's not wine yet. It's turning into wine. So they take it and they put it in jars. And they may have a hundred jars from that wine vat, vat set to the side. And they give it a few days for the stuff to settle to the bottom. And then they take that bottle of wine. They take a clean bottle and they pour it into the clean bottle down to the stuff. They don't want the stuff in there. So the, the juice is poured in and the stuff is set aside. And you know what they do? They do that up to six or eight times because every time they're pouring that out, a little more of the must that made it through is being taken out. Now, I love orange juice and I love it with heavy pulp. In fact, if it was up to me, I would buy orange pulp with juice in it. <laughs> that, that may be great for orange juice, but it's not good for wine. So it's poured from vessel to vessel. One of the laments of the Lord to, through one of the prophets in the Old Testament, he says that, that Israel has not been poured out. It's it sat there and the must is formed, but it's not been poured out. And then, you know, time, it takes time. It takes pouring after pouring. And after months, and if you count the growing time, after years, you produce a skin of wine. Now, the bad news is that's how most stuff in your life is going to be produced. Uh, there's going to be some miraculous stuff. And when God gives you a miraculous something, 
That's the time to shout, break out the Pepsi and party, celebrate. But I'm here to tell you, most of your life is going to be poured out from vessel to vessel. It's called trials. It's called testings. That's why Jesus gave us a guarantee. In this world, you will have tribulation. You will have tribulation. And um, that's why it's so important for us to just abide, just get through the process. So that process, some of it is miraculous. Some of it is systematic. But it's all God. It's all God. And we need to realize that this thing in the Christian life is not an addition to life, like you join the Kiwanis or you join Rotary or, you know, you join Girl Scouts or whatever. It's not an add-on. It becomes the, the center of our life, the center of our life. So if we're a church that believes in decision and we're a church that believes in intimacy, we're also a church that believes in process. You know, we've talked about this before, and I know I say it a lot, but it's because it's that important. Some scriptures in the New Testament talk about salvation in the past tense. You were saved. There's something that happened in the past. It's a decision that I made, and God gave me eternal life. But other passages talk about you shall be saved, talking about the future. This process is not going to be complete till I stand before Jesus. In fact, somebody this morning said, you know, Pastor, I just, I just wish I could touch the heart of God so I can get past all the process. And I said, you can. All you have to do is die <laughs> because the process will be completed on the other side. But a lot of verses, a lot of verses talk about the work that is taking place in us now. So I was saved, I'm being saved, and I shall be saved. But in God's eyes, it's all one big miraculous process. He's promised to get the wine however it needs to be done. So we have learned a $3.75 word to, to call that. It's sanctification. See, sanctification is like that. When I became a Christian, at that moment, I was sanctified. That means made holy. I became a saint. I became part of the redeemed. I became part of his body. I became part of his field. I became part of his building. It happened at one moment in time. It's called by theologians a crisis event. It happened at one point. But not only was I sanctified, and, 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 and remember, when you give your heart to Jesus, you're never more ready for heaven than you are right then. But there is the process of sanctification where I'm growing and I have victories today that I didn't have yesterday. And I'll have victories tomorrow that I don't have today. I hopefully, you'll have to ask my wife probably, but I hope I'm more like Jesus today than I was a year ago. And more importantly, I hope I'll be more like Jesus a year from now than I am right now. So loved ones, we're on a journey. And what I want to talk to you about today is what do you carry on the journey? You've all know what it's like to take a trip where you carry everything you might possibly need only to find out you don't need about 80% of it. We've, we've all done that. I mean, the first few times I went overseas, I carried stuff for every contingency, short of weapons in case of revolution, you know. I carried everything. And I found out 
after a few trips that the best thing I can do is carry as little as possible. There's some things I have to have, but there are some things, one person put it this way, you can carry that, but the question is, do you want to? So the question we want to put before you today as we leave this idea of fighting the good fight and we move to a new series for 2022 called Fullness, Getting the Best Out of Life, the question is what do I want to carry? And I, I need to give one more disclaimer before we get into the main body of this. Um, whenever we talk about traveling lightly and, and holding things loosely, we may be talking about possessions, but that's not the main thing I'm talking about. I want you to know there's nothing wrong with things. When we say travel lightly, that doesn't mean you need to sell your house and, and scale down. Doesn't mean you need to, to sell your car and go buy a used car. It, it it's, doesn't mean those things. It, it, it's not a matter of things being a problem. It, the, the question just boils down to this. Do I have things or do things have me? See, you remember Jesus had no problem with Joseph of Arimathea, a, a very wealthy man. Joseph gave Jesus his tomb. Now, I don't know how much Joseph realized it was only going to be a three-day rental, but he gave him his tomb because there was no place for Jesus to be laid with dignity. So rich people always help Jesus. Mary and Joanna and some of the ladies that traveled in Jesus' company, they all supported Jesus. They were women of some kind of means. Uh, it may not have been that they were wealthy, but they had a way of contributing uh, financially or, or labor-wise, what have you, to the ministry of Jesus. Jesus never had any problem with anybody having things. Zacchaeus had things. He was a tax collector, and they were rolling in dough in those days. And Zacchaeus, you know, Jesus said, come down out of the tree. I'm having supper at your house today. And Zacchaeus, as I've told you before, got saved midair. You know, he, 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 was a, he was a wicked tax collector in the tree. And by the time he hit the ground, he's welcoming Jesus into his home saying, if I've cheated anybody, I'll pay them back fourfold. You know, that's when, when, when a man not only welcomes Jesus, but Jesus has control of every dynamic of his life, including his pocketbook. I think you can make a case he got saved in midair. But then Jesus, Jesus didn't say, oh, Nicodemus or uh, Zacchaeus, you need to get rid of those things. No, he didn't say that at all because he understood for a man to make that kind of adjustment that quickly, he knew that Zacchaeus had things, but things didn't have Zacchaeus. Rich young ruler, on the other hand, man, what a challenge. Here's a man that has been zealously religious has kept the law to the best of his ability. And Jesus said, you know, you've lived so well, there's only one thing that you lack. You're carrying something, but you're tightening your grip on it. You need to sell everything you have and come follow me. Now I'm amazed by two things. Number one, Jesus said, come follow me. I think about the demoniac of Gadara, how many people said, let me follow you. And Jesus says, no, you go back to your home. You make a difference in your city. You go back to your community, man. And then all of a sudden, Jesus is saying, come follow me. What an honor to follow Jesus. He says, but in order to do that, you need to sell everything you've got 
give the money away. And Jesus didn't do that because poverty is wrong, is, uh, riches are wrong and poverty is right. Jesus didn't say that because he's into a great transference of wealth, you know, or a redistribution of wealth. That's not the reason for any of that. The reason Jesus told him to sell everything is because he knew that that man was possessed by his riches. So loved ones, what I want to say is you may have a lot, you may have a huge bank account, or you may be sitting here saying, pastor, I'm trying to pay attention, but I got a check that's going to bounce tomorrow unless God does something. And I, and, and I want to tell you, I, I, I understand there are Christians in all, in both of those situations and everything in between. A person is not righteous because they're rich. A person's not righteous because they're poor. A person's not uh, uh, cursed of God because they don't have this when another person does. No, that's a complicated, layered thing. God has people in every segment of society, and it's too much to answer in one sermon. But I, but I want you to know this is not a message about you shouldn't have stuff, get rid of it. The message is to prompt you to ask this question, what am I carrying and does it deserve to be carried? But I'm not talking about things. You've got to decide that. I am amazed, Paul said, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is not just another account, but there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. See, he says, this isn't just additional information that you're following. You are, you are changing the heart of the message. You have gone back to serving and following the Lord by works, by keeping rules and regulations. And he says, that's not how you got saved. He said, you began by following the Spirit, but now you're trying to go back to keeping all the rules that were doing nothing but pointing to the liberty that you have in Christ. He says... Um, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, even now I say it again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. Now that's Galatians chapter 1. And then Paul summarizes his argument in chapter 5, now there'll be another chapter, but in chapter 5, this is what he says. He says, you were running well. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. He says, whatever has caused you to stop running well. And again, it, it may not be that I'm speaking to a more than a small minority of people here. And if you are running well, then, then take these warnings to heart. Sometimes we, we, we stop running well because things get out of balance and we just grow cold. We leave our first love. It's, it's our doctrine is orthodox. Our belief is proper, but we've just lost the passion. We've just lost the passion. The, 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 the wise man of the Old Testament, and I'm not trying to be uh, vulgar or anything, he said, rejoice with the wife of your youth 
and let her, King James says, let her breast satisfy you at all times. And that word that's translated breast, it means her embrace. What he's saying is this. He says, you're going to get older. Your wife's going to get older. Things are going to change. You're going to look at your wedding picture and say, who is that? But he said, never forget what makes a marriage is not a youthful figure or youthful energy. He said, it's the embrace. It's, it's loving one another. It's, it's the idea of everything I need, I find in grandma, just like I found when we were college students. Okay, but you can get cold. You can get cold and you can forget that the embrace that won you is the embrace that keeps you. Or we can just get casual. We can say, I know the songs. They don't even need to put the songs up on the screen. Save the power. I know the songs. You know the songs, but you've just gotten casual. You've just gotten casual. You know the verses, so you stop having a devotional life. I know. No, you can just get casual. Sometimes if we're not careful, oh, God help us, we can actually become calloused. We can become hard. We can become harsh. We can become judgmental. And worst of all, sometimes we can become carnal. We can know what's right, but still live to the flesh instead of living to God. So how do we, how do we keep our balance on the journey? Well, there are, if you're like most people, you carry two or three bags. You carry two or three things. And I want to talk about those quickly today. Here's the first one. Every one of us who is a Christian carries a cross. I carry a cross. It's not for the super spiritual. Uh, it's carried by us all. And a cross is not the product of your own doing. A cross is not a problem, even a lifelong problem. That's not your cross. The cross is totally outside of you. It has nothing to do with you. You have not produced the cross. The cross that Jesus carried was totally outside of him. He carried his cross and it had absolutely nothing to do with him. It was the failure of me. It was the failure of you. It was the failure of mankind. Jesus deserved nothing that the cross brought him. Nothing. It was outside of him, but it was assigned by heaven. And Jesus, before he died, said this, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily. Now, I, I was fine until he said daily. <laughs> I, I, I want to tell you, I have very nobly picked up the cross, but I only wanted to carry it for a couple of days. <laughs> Go on a missions trip, I don't mind suffering for Jesus, but when I get back home, take me to Whataburger. <laughs> get me. Must deny himself and take up his cross daily. Somebody said one time, Pastor, I, you know, the only thing bad about life is it's just just so daily. Well, it is. That's the problem. And follow me. And then he gives us one of the principles of the kingdom that makes no sense to the natural mind. He said, if you want to save your life, you will lose it. 
But if you were, are willing to lose your life, you will save it. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, one of the uh, party of the high priest said, look at him. He saved others, but he can't save himself. And boy, I tell you, he meant it as a criticism, but nothing was more true that was said that day. If you want to save others, you can't save yourself. Jesus understood the principle of taking up the cross. And he went on to say, this is so important. What good would it be for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self or his very soul? When you and I carry the cross, it is for his glory. It represents God's destiny for my life. It is marked by unhesitating obedience. Jesus did nothing to deserve the cross. And let me just take 30 seconds to explain the magnitude of Jesus' suffering on the cross. See, Jesus hung there, fully God and fully man. As fully man, he suffered for a day. But as God, the God part of him, he took upon himself on that day, that afternoon, that we measured in about six or eight hours. Well, longer if you include the trial. But in the spiritual realm, Jesus took the sin of every man, woman, boy, and girl who ever lived, who is living now and ever will live. He took their sin upon himself and he paid the price of an eternity in hell for every one of us. Man couldn't do that, but God could do that. The infinite, or excuse me, the finite cannot suffer infinitely, but the infinitely can suffer infinitely. And on those hours on the cross, Jesus wasn't just hurt physically. He went to hell forever, for everyone, everyone who has ever lived or ever will. That was the magnitude of what he bore on the cross. And let me tell you what he said just a few hours before in the garden. He said, Father, if there is any way, if there is any other way, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. See, this was not a, a construct of Jesus' behavior. This was the destiny of God. This was his role in the kingdom. And it is marked by unhesitating obedience, the mark of a slave. Now, here, that's the first thing. If you are a Christian, you can't get away from carrying your cross. He said, you're going to have to carry it. You're going to have to carry it. It's the mark of a Christian. Just as I came not to be served, but to serve, you and I live not to be served, but to serve. And that's Christianity 101. I live life by Jesus' terms, not my own. I serve him by his pleasure, not my own. And whatever he says to me, I must do it. But we not only carry a cross, everybody carries a cross. And, and, and it's not, I've had people tell me, you know, I, I have such temptation because I'm so good looking and it's just my cross to bear. No, it's not. It's, that's not a cross. That's not a cross. Um, you know, it, I, I just, you know, it's amazing what we call a cross. But the cross is something very unique and very otherworldly. And it's what we will give account for when we, when we review our life before him. Number two, some of us carry a thorn. 
Paul called this burden a thorn. Paul never called it a cross. Paul understood what the cross was. He talked about the message of the cross and he lived the life of the cross. But Paul said, some of us need to realize that there are times that we will also carry a thorn. Now, I want to tell you openly and up front, I, I can't find in Scripture that everybody carries a thorn. It, it's not in Scripture. Um, you, can, you can make it philosophically, you know, yeah, we all, we all carry a thorn. We all have difficulties. But this was something that Paul had prayed about for 14 years. And, and can, I, can I give you a, a further earth-shaking revelation? When Paul prayed about it for 14 years, God's answer was no. Deliver me, no. Now, most of us call a thorn going through a tough time, and we all have tough times. And that was one of the promises of Jesus. In this world, you will have tribulation. I also need to make it clear that we don't know if everybody carries a thorn. In fact, R.T. Kendall makes a case. I'm not sure that I agree with it, but I understand what he's saying. I'm not, I'm not trashing R.T. But he made an observation. He said, if this is the only indication of a thorn, it's given to people who have had a, a, a miraculous uh, encounter with the Lord, or maybe those that have a, uh, a above average relationship, uh, relationship of intimacy with the Lord. In other words, he says this is, this is something like is reserved for the best. I'm not sure that's true because I don't know of anything in the kingdom of God. And, and R.T. could defend himself better than I can, but I'm not sure that anything in the kingdom of God is based on our merit. But we do know that this thorn came as a result of God's amazing life in the work of Paul. And it was something to, to, as a counterbalance to keep Paul, keep Paul there where he ought to be. Um, I, I don't know also if you have a thorn, I don't know from scripture if it is something that you will have forever. Paul said, this happened to me 14 years ago, the experience that caused the thorn. That meant, if we've got the writing of Galatians right, Paul was probably in his early 30s um, uh, when, when this experience occurred. So apparently he had not had the thorn up to that point. Now Paul, as far as we know, had it till he died. But we do know other folks carry things that are unbelievable and then after a while God will lift it. So, so this, is, this is art, not science, when we talk about understanding the, uh, the thorn. I remember going to a Marine's funeral one time and my brother who was, who was a Marine gave me a biography of the pallbearers. I said, you know them? He said, no. He said, I've never met them. And he, but he went one by one and explained. I said, how, how do you know that? He said, because of their stripes that they wear and the chevrons, the ribbons that they wear, um, uh, the, 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 the trim down their pants. He gave me this whole thing. And he said, but the thing you got to remember is they're all Marines, but they have to earn those chevrons. They have to earn those stripes. They have to earn those ribbons. And I thought that day, that's sort of the way it is. We're all Christians, but our experience may merit some distinctive treatment. I don't know. We don't know that. But this is what Paul said. 
Now, in, in the first paragraph of this, Paul is going to speak kind of cryptically. He says, I knew a man one time, and, and he's talking about somebody that we don't know who it is, and Paul stumbles over his words, uh, it, it seems like to us. What Paul was trying to do was about to tell them about his revelation and his experience with God, and he is trying to be humble. I mean, he really is making an effort to be humble because he doesn't want to say God did all this for me and, and because I've had superior revelations. He wants to make it about someone else and he gets about halfway through it and the Holy Spirit helps him understand, Paul, they need to put flesh with this story. Okay? He said, I must go on boasting, although there's nothing to be gained. I will go on visions and revelations from the Lord. I knew a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. That means the very presence of God. Not a vision of a cloud somewhere, but he's brought into the presence of God. He says it was such a spiritual encounter, I don't know if he was in the body or out of the body. In other words, he says, I don't know if this man actually went there or if it was a vision that he had. He said, I don't know. God knows. And I know this man. Then he repeats, and whether it was him or a spiritual transference, I, I don't know was caught up into paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. You say, oh, that, I don't know about that. You know, if God reveals it, why shouldn't we tell it? Well, that's a question every prophet ought to ask instead of just already, you know, automatically giving it out. We need to say, what is God purposing here? We know in the book of Revelation, that John was shown something profound. And as he began to write, the angel said, no, this is not for anybody but you. You don't tell anybody about this. And to this day, we don't know what that revelation was. He said, I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself. And then he thought, I mean, I don't know that this was his thought process, but I've got to move this from the abstract to the concrete. He said, let me talk about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, it wouldn't be wrong or I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain so that no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. So Paul has tried to say, let me tell you about this. And then he said, you need to know this was me. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. And three times, we don't know if that meant I prayed this day, then I prayed this day, then I prayed this day. Um, three, three times was often used by uh, uh, Jewish writers to mean consistently. Like you, you, know, you, you eat this way, you breathe this way, you have this routine. He says, it was my routine to pray without ceasing for God to take this out of my life. Or it could mean that he just came to three moments of crisis where he was seeking God for deliverance. I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Uh, I know we love to quote that verse, my grace is sufficient, but I don't know that we stop and think it was spoken to Paul when he had come to the end of himself utterly and completely. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, 
I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, because I have learned from this thorn that when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, I want to tell you a couple of things about a thorn. I, I, we're not going to line you up and hear your story and say, yeah, that's thorn. No, that's just an attack. No, that's stupidity. No, we're not going to do that. <laughs> because most of mine have been stupidity. I can tell you that right now. One of the biggest challenges of this message is you, some of you at least are going to have to evaluate something in your life. You've got to determine, is this, is this a thorn from the Lord? Is it an attack from the enemy? Well, it could be, but it still could be a thorn. Paul said this was a messenger from Satan. One of the marks of maturity is you not only understand what is happening, but you also understand the source. But you also understand the purpose. And, and it's a difficult thing. It only comes from a life of intimacy with the Lord. I will tell you this, as you try to determine this about the thorn, if you determine that it's a thorn, I guarantee you that you will usually be misunderstood. Christians will not understand your thorn. It must be a sin in your life. It must be a lack in your life. It must be you did something wrong or, as I said, stupid. You know, I mean, or that's, that's what they'll say. I, I, we, we shouldn't throw that word around casually. Um, you will be misunderstood and you will usually be judged over having a thorn. I've told you this before, but uh, it, 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 one of the leading charismatic figures of our generation of the last 60 years was talking about this verse and other related verses about suffering. He said, all I know is this, if the apostle Paul had had my revelation, he wouldn't have had this thorn in the flesh. Now, now we kind of, you know, and I think he's kind of tried to back that up, but the bottom line is thorns aren't necessary. Thorns are not necessary. Suffering's not necessary. Sickness is not necessary. And that opens up a whole nother set of luggage that we have to deal with. But I will tell you this, we need to position ourselves so that instead of Paul learning from us, we're learning from Paul. And I think there's an arrogance that doesn't let us do this. Let me say this about thorns. Thorns will vary from person to person. It can take many forms. A thorn is not a weakness that I just accept and learn to live with. A lot of times there's things God wants us to press through and fight our way out of, and we just accept it as a thorn. And, and I think that's a mistake. Um, it's not an excuse for sin. It's not something where we say, well, God allowed this to happen to me or God, you know, so he, he understands. I've actually had people through the years tell me that the reason they were living in certain sins is because their life had been so unfair, God gave them a special dispensation. It is something that God wills for my life, even though it is not to my liking. And it does drive me. It does drive me. To utter dependence upon God, it causes his glory to shine through me even more brightly. 
Let me say one thing about thorns, and then we're going to go to the end and wrap this up rather quickly. 1966, uh, summer of 1966, my dad took me to my first major league baseball game. The Braves had moved to Atlanta from Milwaukee, and I was going to see the likes of Henry Aaron and, um, and uh, uh, Eddie Matthews, and I was going to watch these guys, and Joe Torrey, I was going to watch them in the first major league game I had ever attended. I worked extra hard that summer mowing as many lawns as I could, saving up. And I, had my, I was afraid my pants were going to fall off. I had so much money in my pockets. I, I, went, I walked into that stadium with $40 or so. And I said, I, am, I, am, I may never get to another major league game, but I am going to get some souvenirs from this one. I bought uh, all kinds of things. I bought, you know, a hat. I bought a jacket. And um, I bought other souvenirs. But, the, but the, the, the cherished centerpiece was an autographed ball. Not one of these where they manufacture them. You know, they get the signatures and then they print them on uh, uh, cowhide and you buy, you buy a replica. No, this was the real thing. And I had paced like $7.95, $7.50, something like that for it. Remember, it was almost $8. That was four yards. But I bought it, and I'm holding that ball. Hank Aaron signed it. Joe Torrey signed it. Tony Clollinger signed it. Felipe Lou signed it. And I'm, I'm holding this ball. I'm cherishing it. Tell you how long ago this was. They played like the World Series. It was Houston versus Atlanta, <clears throat> except Houston was in the, the National League then. And they weren't called the Astros. They were called the Houston Colt 45s. Who would change a name like that for Astros? I mean, <laughs> the Colt 45s. I brought it home. It was like a funeral procession for a few days at my house as the neighborhood came in and touched a ball that Hank Aaron <laughs> had touched. And I got a cube and I put it up in a place of honor and uh, I wouldn't let anybody touch it without me being there. I, I, you know, I'd want to be sure the hands weren't dirty or anything. And it, it was a treasure. And uh, that was 1966. <clears throat> Later that summer, if you watch the movie The Sandlot, you know that there's a problem when a, when a neighborhood group of kids doesn't have a baseball. So my brothers would come over uh, for lunch just about every Sunday. And every Sunday we'd either shoot baskets or pass football, depending on what season it was. It was baseball season. And we needed to, pay, to play catch. And I just lived, my brothers were older, so when they took time to play catch with me, I lived for it, you know. And I couldn't find a ball, couldn't find a ball anywhere. So I thought, I calculated, and I took that out of its stand of honor. Angels had to back up. <laughs> and we started pitching with that ball. And boy, they, they'd talk about baseball. They'd see a name. And, we'd, and we did that for about four years. Now the ball is pretty scuffed up. I, I, you have to know what you're looking for to be able to read it. But I thought, you know, it was worth more to me for my brothers to pay, play catch than it, than it was to have the ball. Um, and then in 1970, when, um, 
you know, about the time I discovered girls was more important than baseball, I, I, put, it, I put it up and we didn't use it to, to pitch anymore. And you say, well, that was a wise move, you know. Let me tell you something. Uh, after that, from 1970 um, until last year, I kept it in a glass cube. I let my children touch it so that they could say we've been in the presence of the ball and, and we've touched it. <clears throat> but that was about it. I let my kids touch it. My brother died last year. And I've, I have missed him so much. His children are watching today and they'll understand what I'm saying. I, my mother and dad died. My grandparents died. And I don't mean this in any way. It, it, that was gut-wrenching. But that's the way of life. You, you expect to bury your parents. You expect to bury your grandparents. And though the suffering and the loss is phenomenal, I, I, I'm not taken away from that at all. I know what that feels like. You expect your siblings to die when you die. You don't expect them to go before you. It's a different dynamic. And I just caught myself so many times just crying, just wishing I could call my brother, just hear him, just put my arm around him and hug him. You know, we're, we're, we're grandparents, and every time we said goodbye or if we were together, we said goodnight, we gave each other a hug and a kiss, said, I love you. I mean, that, I, I miss that so much. And... After 50 years of being in the cube, I went and got that baseball and I started crying. I said, my brothers touched this. My brothers threw this. I'm a, I'm, I'm a man who's closer to 70 than I am 60, but I picked up that ball and started smelling it. And let me tell you something, it's not in a glass cube anymore not because its value has dropped, but because its value has increased. I, I sometimes when I'm missing my brother, I just, I just go and I touch it and I hug it. And I thank God for every moment that I had with him. You say, Pastor, what are you trying to say? I'm trying to say this. The things that you think are of this value, they may be given by God to produce something in you and that thing is really of this value. It's really of this value. 750, oh, I, I, what in the world did I think that was a lot of money for when my brother touched it? My brother threw it, my brother held it. Now, loved ones, let me tell you something. If you are gonna make the journey with a thorn, you're going to have to realize that you're coming to the same place Paul did. He said, my whole life was bent on God getting this out of my life. But now, it is of more value than I can explain. This thorn has produced something in me that would not be there if God had not put this thorn in my life. Now let's wrap it up because you're done. I carry a cross. It is not negotiable. It is not my choice. I am a servant, a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He did not come to make my life comfortable. He came to make my life holy and I carry his cross and I do it daily. I believe that I carry a thorn. It's not, it doesn't matter what it is because it's my thorn. I don't need to know what your thorn is. I'm so glad Paul didn't tell us what his thorn was because only us with the same thorn would have been able to claim the scripture. No, whatever your thorn, you can carry it and you can see that thing grow in value. <laughs> but unfortunately, we also far too often and unnecessarily carry baggage. Now, baggage is that which slows us down. It's that stuff that you felt you were entitled to on the trip, but you never needed it. It's never served a purpose. You see, when you go on the airlines, they say you can bring X number of pounds. My wife told me one time, she said, honey, just cause you can bring that many pounds doesn't mean you should. Smart aleck. <laughs> no, as usual, she is right. But I tell you what baggage looks like. We know, we, we've learned what the cross looks like. We've learned what a thorn might look like. Let me tell you what baggage looks like. It, sometimes it looks like bitterness. Sometimes it looks like unforgiveness. Sometimes it's scars that have bad memories. Sometimes it's shame over what we did or regret over what we didn't do. It may be an offense or a bitterness resulting from wounds that life has caused. Most of my baggage is me being angry with people that did me wrong or situations that hurt me. Most of my baggage is the shame of something I did or the regret of what I failed to do. And sometimes this baggage is the result of nature or nurture. It may be something you're born into or it may be something you were raised in. It can be learned behavior or generational curses but I want to give you some good news. Whether or not you carry this baggage any longer is your decision. It is optional, unlike the cross. It is not redemptive, unlike the thorn. Oh, we can learn things from it, but there's a time you get past it and you let it go. The writer of Hebrews says, get rid of all the stuff that slows you down. Hebrews 12, 1, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. King James says he despised the shame. NIV says he scorns the shame. I like the way New Living Translation puts it. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding the shame. 
Now, the words mean the same thing in essence, but I like the way New Living Translation puts it because it makes us aware of something. Whether or not I'm going to give credence to these things any longer, whether or not I'm going to regard them any longer is up to me. It's my decision. The things that were done to me, the things that were done against me, the things I didn't understand, and my failures, if I am going to let that shape my life, it is 100% my decision. Some of you have spiritual hernias from carrying so much baggage. I've been there. Let me give you the good news. You don't have to deal with this baggage anymore. Now, let me, let me give you three tidbits to take away. Various helps are available if you're struggling with baggage. Number one, we believe in deliverance. We believe Jesus can touch you where you are right now and take that away. And that's the, that's the, the wine from water. That's the miracle of Canaan and Galilee. God can deliver you instantly. But there's also counsel available. There are programs in our church and programs outside our church that we can refer you to. And you don't have to carry this anymore. So you say, well, why doesn't God just do everything instantaneously? Well, that's a good question. And that's one of the reasons he's God. He knows the answer to that and we don't. But I tell you, one of the things I have learned, sometimes we need to understand a problem thoroughly before we can be free from it. Because if not, we'll, we'll just fall back into the same old stuff. So sometimes he requires counsel to help us understand. And sometimes he says, you've suffered enough. And he moves miraculously. Various helps are available. Number two, our baggage is never an excuse for sin. So don't give place to it. Don't mistake baggage for my cross. So I, just, I have such a strong sex drive. It's just my cross. No, it is manageable. It is containable. And you are to possess your body in sanctification and honor. That's what he said. He made a promise. No temptation will be so great that it overpowers you. In other words, Satan can't overwhelm you. That's a promise from God. So don't call your baggage my cross. And loved ones, I know it's a little harder to identify a thorn, but don't call your baggage your thorn either. A lot of times we make up our mind, we're just going to, I'm like Paul, I'm just going to carry this the rest of my life. God doesn't intend you to carry it the rest of your life because it's not a thorn from him. And here is the final thing I want to say, even if it is bigger than you, even if you see no human way to get rid of this baggage, God promises help. Yeah. Let me say this. He said, no temptation will, will overtake you. No temptation will come upon you uh, that you're unable to resist. We have often thought that that meant God said you won't have any problems that you can't handle. And so we just strengthen ourselves and we say, God said, I'll be able to handle anything. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. Paul said, temptation can't overwhelm you. But this is what Paul said to the Corinthians. He said, there are problems that we cannot solve 
It is beyond our ability to deal with these problems. He said the sentence of death was upon us. We were not going to survive this. There are some things you're not going to survive. There are some things you cannot handle. There are some things you cannot make yourself strong enough to carry. But thank God he didn't stop there. He said, but God gives help in unhelpable situations so that even if we are totally overwhelmed, God says there is a strength. There is a strength I can give you and I will bring you to that place of victory. Now, as I said, you're done. I'm done. Here's the good news. God isn't. I mean, I'm, I'm through with the message, but this is what I want you to do. Number one, if you're listening online, please call into the number that'll be on your screen if you want help, especially if you'd like to give your life to Jesus. If you want that wine to come from the water, if you want that miraculous transformation, being born again, call in and somebody's on the phone waiting for you, then they'll be able to help. <coughs> Same thing if you're here or over in Brown Chapel. If you don't know Jesus, there will be ministry teams at the front and um, they'll be glad to help you too. They'll be glad to help you. But this is what I want you to do. Like last week, God met us in such a powerful way and we knew that most of what we dealt with, we were gonna have to deal with as we go. This may be the same thing. You, I encourage you to seek the Lord to give you understanding, Lord, what is my cross and what is my thorn if I have one? And what do I do with this thorn? And Lord, what am I carrying that's just bitterness, resentment, regret, shame? I want to tell you, nothing good will ever come from that. You say, well, I'll, it'll build my muscles. Not if you can't carry it. it won't. That's what I said. It gives you hernia. It gives, you, it gives you deformity of the spine. It tears your muscles and destroys rotator cuffs. No, something that's not designed to be carried doesn't build muscles. It destroys you. I'm asking God over the course of the next few days. I, I don't know the time. He hasn't given me a time. Some of you have come to the realization of what you need to know now, but some of you over the next few days, you're going to begin to realize, you know, this, I don't need to leave. I don't need to live like this anymore. Some of you are young and I thank God you are so young right now that you have the ability to live life more fruitfully than you can imagine because you're hearing something at 20 that a lot of people don't hear till 60. You're discovering something right now that a lot of us had to struggle with for a long time. Some of you have some $7.95 baseballs that you have been protecting because you thought you understood the value of it, but you don't understand there's something more precious connected. And he's able to perfect his strength in your weakness. Father, help us today. You know where we are. Some are here and need healing uh, for their bodies. Some are here and just need the encouragement of the Lord to go another day. Some of us are here to reevaluate our baggage and the things that we carry. Now, Lord, we're, we're about to begin 
about six Sundays of celebration before we take off on a new journey. But Lord, let this be a time of true celebration these holidays. Thank you. And we say, come, oh come, Emmanuel. Help us to realize it's not just about presents and a baby, but it's about the dealing of God with our sins. Emmanuel, God with us. Lord, let this be the most significant holiday season we've ever had. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.